structural problems need structural solutions. Because we, the people, are of value to the world. Maybe it sounds like a political statement now, but I think it's about the people, not about corporations. Quality, equity, sustainable development, and how these are linked uh, to asset management. Hello and welcome. I am Nick Kenoki, and that was a few snippets from the ALN 2020 Asset Leadership Forum, Restructuring America. You can find the live Zoom recording of this and other events at assetleadership.net. And now, advancing equity with asset leadership. This is Eric Brown. I'm the, assist, uh, the Director of Mobile Assets and Personal Property for the Department of Homeland Security. I've been in asset management for over 40 years, from military to contracting and within the federal government. Um, so it's just been my honor to become uh, one of the members of the ALN. Uh, but it's also my pleasure to do this. Uh, I want to introduce to you guys uh, Mr. Mark Morial, the president and CEO of the National Urban League, former mayor of New Orleans from 1994 to 2002. Um, also has been the president of the mayor's, uh, mayor's conference and the Louisiana senator. Uh, several honorary doctorates in law, human letters, and public service, and recipient of countless awards. He's also an author, and uh, on the top of my list now is his new book, The Gumbo Coalition. So with that, I will introduce to you Mr. Mark Mariel. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate the generous introduction uh, and uh, the kind words. And let me just say good afternoon to everyone. Uh, I want to especially thank my friend Marty Rowland, who uh, first reached out to me to uh, invite me to participate today. Marty uh, was part of my first uh, campaign for mayor way back in 1993 and 1994. So. Thank you, Marty, for your friendship and also for your many years of advocacy. I was thinking, because you've asked me to talk about inequity and the subject of asset uh, management and asset leadership, uh, about a, 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 a something that happened my first month or two as mayor of New Orleans. The mayor of New Orleans uh, serves concurrently as president of what is known as the New Orleans Sewerage and Water Board. Uh, and the Sewerage and Water Board is uh, the, the agency that oversees the city's water systems. The water systems, of course, include the fresh water system or the clean water system or the potable or drinking water system. It also includes the waste water system. And then it thirdly includes the city's drainage system. New Orleans has an extensive network of pumping stations, underground canals, uh, catch basins and the like, uh, which allow the city to be able to exist in a part of the world that is below sea level. Uh, and this system uh, is, uh, was, a, was, a, was an innovation uh, of the early 1900s uh, and remains so to this day. It's had some challenges in recent years with the age of equipment. Uh, that system uh, and its development uh, has been supported by uh, the United States Army Corps of Engineers uh, and connects to the broader, uh, if you will, drainage system and storm water and flood control system that exists in southeastern Louisiana. Early on in my career, we were discussing the decision-making process that the water board had undertaken to determine where enhancements uh, to its drainage system 
would take place, where the investments would be, where the priorities would be, in effect, what neighborhoods and where would the money be spent? And the discussion turned into a discussion of cost-benefit analyses. Uh, and uh, the presenter said, well, we look at uh, the value of property that would be impacted by a flood or a storm and where the value of the property is the highest, the potential damage would be more significant is where we prioritize uh, the, uh, the investments in quote unquote, your drainage system if we are going to support it. To which I ask, what value do you put on people? Because in a system like that, wealthier neighborhoods would always get ahead. Wealthier neighborhoods with the nicest houses would always receive the priority for the investments in flood control systems. And I said, what value do you put on people? Do people figure into the equation? Uh, because those of you that are involved in emergency preparedness always know people come first. People come first when you're firefighting. People come first when you're doing disaster preparation. Property comes after people in every single element. I point that out because I challenged the formula at the time is being inherently inequitable. And for New Orleans, that meant inherently having a racial, racially exclusionary dimension. Uh, we are at a point in time in American history uh, today where uh, with uh, everything we do, with many assumptions we've taken, with many decision-making metrics, matrices, I should say, and decision-making equations that we've used, uh, we have to challenge whether those systems are inherently inequitable, inherently inequitable from a racial standpoint, and think about how and why, in many respects, we need new thinkings and we need new systems. Uh, I learned when I joined, uh, when I became mayor in 1994, we were going to embark on a significant, uh, if you will, uh, capital projects program. We were going to go to the voters and ask for the authorization to issue bonds uh, in a number larger than ever before in the city's history. Uh, we were going to make significant improvements to the then airport. We were going to bring rail systems to uh, the city. We had a comprehensive nearly billion dollar program. I asked the staff, this is in my earliest months as mayor, to uh, give me a historical map uh, and color code, because I wanted to see it visualized, as to where, in what neighborhoods, the city's investments in street repairs and drainage repairs had taken place over the previous 10 to 15 years. I wanted to know where we had spent our capital projects dollars, where we had spent our CBDG public facilities dollars. Woe and behold, when it was mapped out, it demonstrated an inherently inequitable result. The more affluent neighborhoods in the city had seen significantly more street repairs 
significantly more capital projects, uh, the less affluent neighborhoods in the city, which were mostly African-American, had seen fewer street repairs and fewer investments in drainage. And I presupposed uh, that this, if you will, pattern had existed for a long time. And my administration was the very first to put a lens of analysis onto decision-making. How are we going to make the decisions? Are we gonna do it need-based? Are we gonna to try to do it in a way that's at least equal as to dollars spent in various neighborhoods? Are we gonna put more money where the problem was greatest, where the historic underinvestment was more significant? Again, uh, challenging a long-held assumption where the decisions on capital projects had been made through politics and whoever had the strength and the power to lobby the city government the hardest, what neighborhoods made the best case. Uh, and in that instance, also because of New Orleans historic segregation and the fact that you had uh, exclusionary policies for many years, the result was you could visually see how poor neighborhoods had been shortchanged in capital investment dollars. But again, it was an analysis uh, that, that we did and we tried to, to, to change the decision-making formula. In today's world, the ability to parse, chop, control, uh, uh, dissect data and information is far greater than it was 20 years ago. And the ability to truly challenge decision-making uh, is, uh, uh, and, and to think anew about how decisions are made with respect to public investments, with respect to uh, uh, decisions about where you build and how you build are certainly, certainly much more available today if the will, the will, the will to do it is absolutely there. Uh, I am one who believes that uh, job one after January one for the nation, uh, in addition to trying to address the ravages of COVID uh, and the pandemic certainly uh, will be a broad investment in uh, the country and the nation's infrastructure. Uh, and the challenge will be, will we do it the same old way or will we do it in a new way? Uh, will we do it in a way that creates long-term resilience? Will we pay attention to uh, issues of environmental sustainability and environmental justice in trying to do it? It'll be a tall order for us to be able to do. Uh, the National Urban League has long championed uh, a different way of investing in our infrastructure including a much bigger focus on community-based infrastructures, health clinics, libraries, schools, uh, assets and facilities that are close to people, not simply just bridges, not simply just airports, not simply that, even though those in many instances are needed. But how we do it and what steps we take, I think is going to be part of how we try to meet the moment. Uh, we're at an inflection point and a crossroads point 
uh, in American history when issues of racial justice uh, touch everything we do and rightfully should. And for those of you who are on the front lines, uh, it is so critical that you challenge your own thinking, you challenge your own selves, and that we challenge assumptions in an effort to do it differently and an effort to do it right. When Katrina took place, uh, I was three years, uh, uh, my term had ended three years prior to Katrina. And uh, I was uh, horrified and, and, and repelled uh, to learn of a plan that had been hatched. And I talk about it in my book, The Gumbo Coalition, to in effect wipe out whole neighborhoods in New Orleans to wipe them out in a way where the people who lived in those neighborhoods had been evacuated, uh, had been, if you will, exiled away from the city that they knew and loved and were not at the table to make decisions. That a small group of high and mighty people had taken it up on themselves to try to develop a plan. The plan was repelled and rejected and, 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 and rightfully so by many people including myself, as being unfair, and, and I refer to it in my book as ethnic cleansing because of what exactly it was what it was. What's central uh, to how we think about uh, these issues today is the participation and the continued public education of people who are affected, served, and impacted by these decisions. Uh, who, uh, who, uh, whose lives, whose homes, whose livelihoods, whose businesses, whose public facilities, whose schools, whose hospitals, whose, who are affected uh, by many of these very important uh, decisions. And I certainly believe that in a quest uh, for more an equitable future for this country, uh, that uh, the participation and the voices of those who have, been, who have been historically locked out and left out is so absolutely uh, uh, essential. Yes, we need uh, new approaches. Yes, we need new plans. Yes, we need new ways. Uh, but we also need uh, a greater awareness uh, of, uh, of, of the inequities uh, that was sort of built in to many of the old ways uh, and, and an awareness of them and a constructive dialogue and then constructive steps about how to change it indeed for the better. Uh, that is what I believe this nation has been about in the past, needs to be about even to a greater degree in the future. How can every successive generation take steps, sometimes giant leaps, towards a nation that's more equitable and more just for all. And I think those of you who, who are in leadership positions, as many of you, most of you are, have to think about that. Uh, it, is, it is about a, a generational legacy. It is about uh, uh, addressing longstanding challenges and problems. It is about meeting the moment of the crisis that the nation faces uh, with the pandemic, with the economy, uh, and indeed with the issues of, uh, of racial justice. So uh, I wanted to share that with you all today. I know you, uh, you're in conference uh, exchanging and learning. 
uh, and encourage you to challenge yourself around these issues of equity and around assumptions uh, around uh, asset management, asset location, uh, uh, significant decision making uh, 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 processes and, and what goes into it and how you can make it uh, more equitable and how you can make it more beneficial to more people. So I will uh, pause there uh, because I know that time is uh, in great demand, but thank you for your attention today and, and wish you the very best as your discussions and conversations continue. Very good. So we really appreciate your time and your efforts and everything on this. And we have a couple of questions for you that have popped yes, up. Yes, certainly. I'll take a few. Uh -huh. Okay. If you don't mind, uh, Mr. Marty Rowland asks, and he says, good setup uh, to the basic inequity of urban system delivery. Uh, did you also look at, uh, look at uh, who is paying property taxes? Because sometimes the wealthy get exemptions and it ends up uh, where poor and middle income people pay for the wealthy people's privileges. Now, let me tell you, we could talk for, um, for many, many minutes and many, many hours about the inequitable nature of tax systems at the state and indeed the federal level, uh, because the tax system at the federal level is loaded with special interest exemptions, exclusions, deductions, and it's a complex subject. When I was in the Louisiana State Legislature, we decided that we were going to, we were not successful in doing it, but there's a group of us that wanted to put a sunset or an automatic expiration on every tax exclusion so that those who benefited from it would have to re-justify it every five or so years. Uh, but this is, this is a question of, of power. The, you know, the recent tax bill that uh, was pushed through by the current president cost the nation 1.5 trillion over 10 years. Uh, and it, it, it's, its benefits were heavily skewed towards the wealthiest of Americans. And I think if you look at many of these broad tax cut provisions that have been passed really over the last 40 years, they generally are skewed mostly towards wealthier interest. Very good. So, uh me being uh, from New York City, uh, living here in Washington, D.C. area, uh, visited New Orleans hundreds of times, which is one, one of my favorite cities in the world. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. And, 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 and dying to go back. Um, so uh, I do see, you know, when you uh, talked about awareness, representation is a big part, too. I think we need more representation to make these decisions at a higher level. Uh, then we've been pretty you know, afforded in the past. I mean, uh, representation normally comes from those who have the money to do so. Uh, in some cases, not always, but um, we, we need better representation in order to make these good decisions. That's just an Ericism right there. <laughs> Agree with you 100%. Uh, I do have another question for you, um, and it's from Mike Bonaro, actually. Uh, He'd like to know if the National Urban League is interested in learning how uh, the systematic approach of ISO 50, 55,000 can be used to address inequity uh, in uh, I, I think Chicago. we would. You know, we're always open to learning. Uh, I have a dynamic group of 90 Urban League affiliate CEOs around the country who run my affiliates. I've got a great senior leadership team, I, I, and we are always open to learning uh, new, new methods, new systems, and uh, uh, about community decision-making. 
Very good. Uh, are there any more questions from the panel or from any of the participants? Yes, I have a few questions. And Mark, thank you so much. Hey, Cecilia, how are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, good afternoon. It's now afternoon, at least in Chicago. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was so glad that you started where you did. Um, as we talk about asset leadership network and asset leadership and asset management, um, the one asset that doesn't always come to mind is the human asset. The people and so that was really critical that you raised that as your very first issue that you raised so thank you for that because without the people in place first of all what are you doing it for you're doing it for the people i mean i do holistic inclusive economic development work and economic development is nothing but for the people by the people for the people and of the people and so when you started talking about the water system, that is like the perfect issue for an asset leadership um, opportunity. And you showed how you did that in a very perfect way in terms of um, when we look at ISO 55,000 and it really in ISO 55,001, this is a standard that we have at our resources, at our hands as a tool that we can use to identify things that we might forget about. And water systems are, especially the ones you were talking about, are out of sight and out of mind. And you have a hard time thinking about those substations and those pipes if you're the community, your, your constituency would not think of it. So it's an important thing to look at that and you know you you as leader really hit one of our key things that we talk about in ISO 55001 um, 5.1 is about leadership that you have to have the leadership in and Mark I mean Eric made the comment about representation and the difference in having somebody who comes from an underrepresented population who is of a diverse background, whether it's a minority or a diverse background from the other people in the room, will raise different questions. And you raise the questions and challenge them. And that is the leadership aspect we really think is important. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was when you talked about the community-based infrastructure, because I do the holistic side, you mentioned libraries and schools, and that made me very excited because this is something that has to be done in partnership. Holistic inclusive economic development is something done in partnership with interdependent parts. So the schools, the parks, the hospitals. Parks, yes. Um, the recreational aspects of a community, the hospitality, all that, the retail, these all have to come into play. So I'm curious how you found yourself bringing those things into play and then layering it as somebody who was mayor. How did you also then look at who were the people that weren't at the table because 55,001 um, in the Section four really deals with stakeholders. And I often talk about the unusual stakeholders, those that people don't think about. So how did you deal with bringing- You know, I, uh, 
when I served as mayor, I had a fundamental philosophy and it was that, you know, I wanted to bring disparate groups together. And I felt like the only way I can move big things was to get broad consensus. And the only way I could build broad consensus is to get diverse groups sort of around a table or not around the same table around an initiative. And sometimes you have to realize you have to create it so that there are wins for everyone. Uh, and, and it's not easy to do. When I did the first bond issue, I also talk about this in my book, New Orleans had had a habit of going to the voters for single projects. The convention center would go for a project, uh, it'd be a project for streets, a, a proposition, separate propositions. And I basically said, we're not gonna have any more separate propositions. We're gonna have one proposition with all the projects included in a single proposition. So when everyone votes yes, they vote on the proposition, they vote no. So what it forced is, it forced the hospitality industry, which was interested in a convention center expansion. The port interests, which were interested in money to improve port access. It forced the, those groups to be at the table with the people that just wanted their streets repaired or the 30 million that I wanted to spend on recreation facilities. And I said, this is how this is gonna work. We're gonna all get in a canoe and we're gonna row. And we're all in one canoe. This is how this goes. And we all gonna either, you know, get, go together, we all go over the waterfall together. I said, because all this cherry picking creates competition and resentment. So obviously that made the proposition much larger. And then I had the schools out there that I didn't control. They wanted to do something. I had business leaders say, well, we can only do schools of the city. I told the schools, I said, so I'm getting this canoe. You're all getting this big canoe. And, and we're gonna push this canoe in the same direction. It's gonna make it bigger. It's gonna make it more substantial. Uh, it's gonna make it more expensive, but it's gonna create a winning proposition for the city. We passed the bond issue two to one overwhelming margins because we were able uh, to do that. And, you know, it was, it was counter to the way business had been done usually. And so what I'm saying now at the federal level, I've said this across the board for the last six or seven years, I've said, number one, we're not going to support an infrastructure program that does not include community facilities. We're also not gonna support an infrastructure program that doesn't have built into it uh, workforce, job training, uh, uh, job commitments to people who have historically been locked out, like returning citizens and the like. Gotta build it into the program. I said, secondly, we're gonna wanna roll for minority-owned businesses in the program. I said, and we're gonna put, you gotta put all, I said, this is what we want all these pieces to be put together. And we want benefits uh, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, 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 environmentally sustainable transportation, public transit, you know, rail systems and the like. So, you know, the, the whole idea is 
you have to start with an inclusionary vision, right? And I use, you know, Washington likes to talk about, uh, they, they like to use the term bipartisan. I like to use the word inclusionary because it's not about politicians getting in a room and cutting a deal. It's about whether the people broadly benefit. And I've said to, uh, we were talking about this issue, of issue of housing, and someone said, well, what about the rural? I said, well, the rural area, bring them in, get them in a canoe too. Why can't we, if we think big and large, and I think it, it, it's, it's a mindset that speaks to not having a zero-sum game mindset. You know, the country right now is in a big, is in a challenging spot, and it needs some big moves and some big ideas to move us in the right direction. And that's the kind of leadership we need. And we need, we need leadership that's serious, that's gonna say, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna make an effort to try to put packages together that benefit a lot of people. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of how I think about this, this type. You have to think about it in that way. And I'm not, this is, it's, it's, it's very doable. You know, if, if you say, because see the people uh, beyond all this, you know, definite differences of opinion about ideology and politics. At the end of the day, people are trying to make sure their neighborhood, they're trying to take care of their families. They want to be healthy. They want to be safe. Their kids want to be educated. You know, you got to kind of get back to what the objective is. Thank you. That's right on target. And I really appreciate your thoughts on it. And I'll have more after Hugh has a question. Okay. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, Mr. Morial, I, being in the water industry, I was appreciative of the example that you used. One thing that I've been trying to, uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on, is I think the nation's uh, consciousness was brought to attention with the story of Flint. And I think uh, in that example, I wanted to understand what was your thoughts on uh, what I tend to see, especially approaching this from the technical side, being an engineer, being in the uh, water utility industry, is the fact that there seems to be a strategic disconnect between the strategic objectives set by the stakeholders. And the breakdown seems to happen in the implementation phase where plans actually become created and executed. And there seems to be a lack of what may, may need to be a level of service expectation for all customers. So then we move the conversation beyond affordability, which tends to then drive a different expectation of level of service where, uh, as you referenced, those who can afford to advocate may necessarily do so. But uh, it seems to be that there may need to be a need for what would be a benchmark or you know, somewhat close to a customer bill of rights in terms of- Yes. If there is investment, all customers are treated equally. Uh, have you had any experience with that? And, and I will tell you, is the this is where, around that? so when you're a public official, you work in a water system, you work in a transit system, and you bring the sensibility of understanding what the locked out and the left out have experienced because it's part of your life. It's part of the communities that you love and you know. And you bring that into uh, being an executive in a water system or utility system. 
you have to bring those sensibilities to the decision-making table. You have to be disruptive, you know? In other words, sometimes I always felt, I'm not just gonna sit back and just respond to the people that make the most noise. You know, I'm gonna have a point of view because I realize that there are parts of the community that may not be as well organized to come to these meetings and come downtown and, and but, but they're relying on me because they hired me by electing me to advocate for them, to advocate for them. And if I just sit back and say, well, why aren't you all downtown? Well, you're not downtown because you're working. You're not downtown because you don't have a neighborhood association with an executive director or to come down here and advocate for you. So you have to sometimes, people inside public agencies, water systems, you know, uh, I think the disrupt, the change we need is there ought to be an operating ethos of equity. That when we do work, we're going to make sure that we serve everyone the same. We're going to be equitable about how we invest in upgrades, repairs, customer service, uh, and the like. Now, here's the backdrop. Uh, I was talking to a group of young people. Uh, and we were, I was teasing them because I said, do you know what an outhouse is? I said, outhouse? No, I don't know. What is an outhouse? And I said, well, this is what an outhouse is. I said, and did you know that indoor plumbing was an innovation of the early 20th century? To build houses with indoor plumbing was an innovation. And the idea of uh, water at the tap in a house or an apartment was an innovation of the, you know, late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, and the point is, is that our water systems are now in many instances 100 years old. They're deteriorating, they're falling apart. They've suffered from lack of deferred maintenance, lack of investment, lack of of, of, of care and attention. That's part of the problem in Flint, but there are many Flints across the land, many places across the land. Uh, so when you are in a role to be a decision maker on, an, on the inside, you have to insist that customers are treated equally. You have to be an advocate inside. People inside of a government, inside, can also be advocates uh, for, for equity. And you talk about a customer bill of rights? Absolutely. I mean, water systems, utility systems, uh, city governments uh, can, can adopt such things and say this is an operating principle. We're going to treat people the same. We don't care what part of town they're from. We don't care what neighborhood uh, they are from. Uh, we are going to treat everyone the same. We're going to at least strive and endeavor to do that. And, and I think that's what people expect. And I do think that's what people uh, uh, expect from government. You have some of the largest businesses in America who place a premium on customer service. They put a lot of energy in it. Now, they do it because they don't want bad press. They don't want upset customers. They have specialists that resolve
problems. And then you have some companies that are very poor at it. You know, they don't do a very good job. They're not as responsive. I talked to a business leader in the, uh, I was just in the cable industry, who told me that he was doubling down on his investment in customer service. And he said, the reason why he says is because if I can resolve customer problems with one or two contacts with the customer, I'm going to save money versus it takes 10 times talking to them to resolve. So I have to have a good customer service operation where we try to resolve things quickly. We, 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 we empower people to make decisions. Uh, it's a long way of saying, uh, answering your response that it has to be a principle and an ethos inside of an agency. And that if you're a change agent and uh, uh, the previous questioner talked about representation, this is where representation, you know, comes in. I, I raised the questions I raised about uh, the water system in New Orleans because I felt like I had an obligation to the neighborhoods uh, that were instrumental to my election, number one, but also the neighborhoods I knew growing up in the city. You know, I knew, I rode around, I saw, you know, the deteriorating infrastructure. I'd always see it and it used to not, I didn't like it, right? So my thing was, if I get a chance to do something about it, I'm not gonna just get excited about being the mayor of my hometown. I'm gonna try to do something. I'm gonna try to make a, make a difference. And you know, that's what I encourage people to do in this moment, right? Make a difference, raise the issue, articulate the challenge, push for customer bill of rights, push for the principles of equity. So uh, just one uh, follow-up, we see that in the challenge of the larger society, you know, uh, we tend to realize that structural problems need structural solutions. So uh, advocacy and representation alone will not fix it. And right. I think what has been highlighted here, especially with ISO 55000, but I think what needs to be actualized and, and made actionable is a structural fix to a system that's designed to create the outcomes that we see now. And how do we connect advocacy with strategy and then outcome to ensure that we have a structural fix that enables an equitable return? You asked the most difficult and pressing question. You know, how do you take sort of advocacy, sometimes a little outrage, sometimes concern, sometimes, and actualize it? This is where, um, I think people like you come in. Uh, I think it is about uh, 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 looking at systems and saying, okay, here is how we can make the system more equitable. Here are the steps we have to take. But one of it has to be a recognition that you're not gonna do these things overnight. And you have to sometimes have small victories. And sometimes you have to have methodology and sometimes you have to have plans it is not but you have to identify like in my example which is a, a narrow example but a real example about how they were evaluating where they put their investments now obviously i had the power to uh to uh to because i was you know i was a mayor of the city to say i don't want us to do business like that anymore because i'm not the, i won't sign off on anything and so it forced 
people to think about things differently. And in this case, we were bumping up against the Army Corps of Engineers, which had its methodology uh, at the time. Uh, but that this is where, you know, the generation of, I'll call it engineers, public administrators, uh, elected officials, uh, uh, really, really have to uh, uh, design the proper solutions to get from advocacy that puts you on a path of structural change. It is not easy. And you can easily get frustrated if you imagine that structural change can happen overnight or immediately or instantaneously. It requires policy shifts. It requires policy changes. So sometimes it's taking a slice of the pie and trying to re-engineer it or, or fix it. Uh, it also requires, you know, you have generations of both engineers and technicians and MBAs and lawyers. Uh, I'm a lawyer who are taught a certain way. You're taught a certain way to think about things. Sometimes the way you're taught is inherently based on inequitable assumptions. Now, you ever face that challenge? And you say, well, I'm not so sure that this is the way. So I think that this is one of the great challenges of our times, how to, how to address. But let me tell you, where structural inequality exists is within institutions. So you take a water system, or you take a, a, a public agency, right? And you say, well, can I do my part to uh, infuse a better set of equitable principles in how we're going to make decisions going forward in this agency? You got to take slices sometimes. It's, 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 this is, but you asked a very you know, important and compelling question. And I hope in the conference, they'll take your question and you all will discuss it and debate it a little bit because I think it's, it's, it needs to be. Thank you. I wanted to continue on my question with Hugh's question in terms of the structural side of how do you go about having those constructive discussions, Mayor Morial? How do you um, begin that process of, you may be mindful about this issue and aware of it, but as you said, the others that are working with you are coming from the disparate backgrounds and they have their mindsets of how this should work, whether it's the technician or the lawyer or the politician. How do you go about avoiding the shame blame game and raising consciousness so that you can say, we're going to have this as the beginning of our discussion, looking at what are the issues that have not been addressed who are the stakeholders that have not been included? This is where we are as a nation today. How can we have difficult conversations? How can we do it in a way where people can be candid and people don't uh, get offended uh, quickly? It, it, it is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes it's smart, it starts with small groups. Sometimes it starts with a handful of people. Sometimes it starts uh, in, in interesting ways. Sometimes it starts with a leader who says, you know, I'm, I'm committed to this and I wanna change and I'm gonna help you get educated. I was asked uh, a couple of times over the last several months uh, by CEOs who've asked me for books, uh, 
videos, movies that their leadership team mm -hmm. uh, could take a look at to better educate. It starts with everyone really asking themselves, can I have an open mind? You know, or am I so fixed in my own brilliance, <laughs> sh sureness, and, uh, and, uh, and, and so impressed with what I know that I can never have an open mind about things I'm not aware of. I can't, I, I'm not subject to being challenged. Not easy. Yeah. We shouldn't pretend it's easy, but it starts with small groups and it starts with uh, people. I've been telling a story. I'll tell you guys this story because I think it's relevant to the times. Uh, you know, I got a letter about uh, two months ago, two and a half, three months ago from someone I was in uh, middle school with. And so I went to middle school. The middle school I attended, I, I integrated it in 1968. I was the first, one of the first two black students to go to the school. And for the four years I was at this middle school, I was the only black person in my class. And there were only two black students in the whole school. And, uh, you know, it was a, an experience that was positive, but it was an experience where getting called names and being picked on, particularly by older boys in the school, was not an uncommon thing, right? So as you can imagine, I got my share of fistfights because uh, it was just kind of who I was. Uh, and I got a call, I got a, I got a letter from a, a, a man and you know, this is 50 years later, 48, 49 years later, he writes me a letter of apology says that, uh, you know, I apologize because I racially bullied you when I was in, we were in middle school. And he says, you know, that the Black Lives Matter movement and discussion in America had caused him to be introspective mm. about who he was and who he, who he was and who he wanted to be. It was sort of, you know, an inch. This letter came out of the blue now, you know, just totally out of the blue. But it, it, it shows you that, you know, sometimes people have awakenings. And... Um, these discussions are not easy, uh, but they're important things for us to have in the nation, right? To criticize or to raise issues about American history is not to be anti-American. You know, people forget that the, the, this nation was founded on protest. The Boston Tea Party was a protest mm -hmm. by the settlers who were protesting the Stamp Act. They were protesting a uh, monopoly franchise given to a company to sell tea in, in the Massachusetts colony. They protested, protest, they were disruptive. They pushed back and that's part of the tradition of the history of this nation. So uh, having those discussions, I think, uh, uh, we also, you know, all of us, we, you know, you, you have to be open to hear people's fears, anxieties, and aspirations. I mean, as, as, a, as an, as an African-American man who has an 18-year-old son, you know, I live with an anxiety when he goes out, can't help it. It is what it is. I think I've raised a good young man with a good head on his shoulders, but I have anxiety about it as any parent would have anxiety. And I, 
reflect on the things that I experienced, you know, growing up. Uh, and, and that is extremely real. And that may not be something that others may necessarily feel intrinsically. But uh, those conversations, we have to kind of force them. Uh, and, and I think small, sometimes smaller groups create, I think it's hard to do in a large setting sometimes until you set up smaller conversations. And I think they're also important conversations to have relative to how you rethink the work and the mission of the organization or the agencies that you lead. Yeah, I'm gonna have have to cut in one. I got one more question. Is that Daniel? Okay, sir. Hi, Daniel. Yeah, great, great, Daniel. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Um, first, Mark, uh, congratulations for your job. Thank uh, you. Uh, I'm living in Colombia, South America. <laughs> ah. Are you in Cartagena? Or no, Bogota? I, I, I was living in Cartagena many years ago. <laughs> Very beautiful city. I was there three years ago. Very beautiful city. Oh, uh, I want to talk about risk management. Uh, risk, management risk management is uh, a key topic in, in uh, asset management. In your making decisions process, <clears throat> how you uh, use risk management? Uh, do you use uh, a risk uh, 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 matrix or uh, something like that? I'm so curious. Uh, in, in you know, uh, I always, you know, it's interesting. When I am, we had this discussion about something recently in the work that I do, and we were talking, I, I was talking about materiality. And it came into play about a clause in a contract. And we were fighting over it with the people we were contracting with. And I said, well, let's ask this question. Is it material? And the... Uh, my team said, well, what do you mean by materiality? I said, I mean, is the risk that the provision would be triggered a remote risk, right? Or a near risk? In other words, is this something that is likely to happen? Uh, or is this something that is so remote, right? Or it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000. And they said, well, how do we know that? I said, well, this is called making a judgment call. You know, it's imperfect because you don't have a crystal ball. You can't look into it, see the future. You know, it's not, it's not mathematical, although the analysis is mathematical. I said, so this is what I'm paying you guys for, to exercise judgment, right? And I think that risk management is all about judgment but it's also sometimes about seeing around the corners. Sometimes to do effective risk management, you have to be somewhat worldly. You have to be, uh, have a sense of history. You know, you have to have a basic understanding because, and so we do it all the time. I do it all the time in budgeting. And how do I do it in budgeting? So I, ru I run a nonprofit. I have to make, we have to make a determination as to when someone makes a pledge to us, how likely is it that the money's gonna come in, right? We have to analyze that. So we've created an 85% certainty rule that we're 85% certain that the money will come in. And when we, sometimes we debate, you know, whether this pledge from this 
donor is 85% certain. And so like sometimes when it's, I said, well, do we have it in an ironclad agreement? Does this donor have any history with us, right? Uh, so we use, in my work, I use, I've always used, it may not be totally formalized, but I think it is an essential part of all decision-making. But deciding on risk is many times a judgment call. You know, you can't always, sometimes in more scientific stuff, you may be able to be more certain. Uh, but I think it's essential. And I find, I'll say this last thing, that the ability to analyze risk is really an important skill. You know, to really be able to see, you know, I call it looking around the corner. Can you see around the corner a little bit? You know, can you really look out there so you, we know? And, but it comes, in, in my work, it comes up quite a bit particularly when we're in uh, agreement, negotiating agreements, you know, whether a provision is necessary and, or whether what it seeks to protect is so remote that if we lose it, we're not placing ourselves at great risk. Hope that helps. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Marty Rowland wants to say something to you kind of quickly. Hey, Marty. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to have you uh, here, uh, Mark. I appreciate you participating. One of the uh, things I'd like to say is that I'm encouraged that uh, Asset Leadership Network and uh, National Urban League might be able to uh, collaborate for a, a joint uh, uh, effort. Uh, I was thinking in terms of the 60 chapters that you have that we might be able to do some communication. Uh, one of the things I think is important is that the, there's a a uh, series of practices that could be used together uh, that would help identify that how do you implement something on a small scale and then ramp it up and see where you're going and then go on because uh, you got the examples of, of Flint um, that, that are still out there and uh, not only water but you know a myriad of, of things that need to be fixed but uh, I think uh, this might be the the level that we 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 go to and uh, you know make some great success. So I just wanted to uh, thank you for participating and hope that we can uh, collaborate. We'll catch up, Marty. Always thank you for your friendship and uh, look forward to further discussions and collaboration. And thanks to everyone today. Hope this discussion was helpful. Outstanding, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, very nice good, everyone. Eric, Bye, Mark. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> that was so, so I think that went very well, everyone, so far. Thank you so much. Um, do we have any, uh, well, first of all, it sparked a lot of thought in me. I'm not an asset uh, leader as other than asset management, when I'm talking about personal property, fleet management, those type of things. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time, but you guys are hitting the infrastructure. You guys are hitting the country with the different things that impact people, not just the federal government. So I, I, I applaud you all. And the questions so far have been like outstanding and definitely expanded my mind a little bit. So I thank you. You know, the one thing I would say though, Eric, is, is the fact that I think the one third that we have to really emphasize and look at here is that you know, when we talk about the structural inequities that are present, it's present 
in infrastructure, in fleet management and everything else. I think what we have here is a inherent breakdown in the fact that systems have been tailored towards uh, appeasing the points of pain, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the value proposition has been skewed to the fact that advocacy has been turned into the proposed outcome of the solution, right? Instead of necessarily looking on, and this is the challenge of inequity, really, to be honest, is the fact mm -hmm. that inequity is firmly rooted in the disenfranchised, right? And we're really looking on how do we necessarily now pivot with a structural organized solution that enables the disenfranchised to have an equitable stake in the outcome. Because obviously the system can deliver. It's just the fact that the system disproportionately delivers to those who have the power of advocacy. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think it brings back to the, the thought process of ISO 55000 and other structural solutions. And I think it also creates the commonality between all implementation platforms in understanding the fact that uh, advocacy has to be leveraged through a structural strategic solution to get the equitable outcome. I think the breakdown here that we've seen and it was exemplified by what Mark was saying is the fact that in the city's operation all along before, there was no highlighting or understanding as to how the mechanics worked to implement the inequity. And I think now, you know, ensuring that what we don't have is noise on the, on the advocacy side, not being translated to exactly how do we strategically and structurally create a transformative delivery method that, that, that then allows for incremental improvements towards a goal of equity. Right. I think that's really where we would need to go. And I think it fundamentally breaks the misunderstanding before where the technical was firmly disattached from the socioeconomic. Right. And I think that's really where the breakdown was structuralized even more, where the engineers, the planners, all those, they looked on advocacy for equity as being an external stakeholder that didn't have direct impact on the work that they were doing. Very good. So before we, before we move on, I'd like to uh, take the opportunity to allow each one of you guys for those uh, other participants that we have online to just actually talk about yourselves just a little bit. So of course I introduced myself after, before Mark Mariellen told you what I do and what my background was. I kind of like to go around just so everybody knows who they're uh, listening to. And, and what your experiences are. And I, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with Cecilia. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, so my name is Cecilia Mowat, and my company is Strategies in Sight. And my focus has been on holistic, inclusive economic development, as I mentioned. My background, however, is being an attorney, having worked in the corporate world, and having worked in asset management with one of the biggest um, owners of assets, McDonald's Corporation, um, and other companies. So I've come to this with the perspective that I shared earlier, that you really have to look at all the interdependent parts and bring them together when dealing with any project and make sure that you're considering, just like Mark said, 
bringing people into that rowboat. Let's get in one canoe, let's all row. Some of you are gonna row more, but others of you, everybody has to be there so that we're going down the same river. And I use a different euphemism of bringing people to the table. You know, looking at Martin Luther King's big world house speech that he gave in the Nobel Peace Prize back in 64 when he won that, he talked about all of us coming from these different backgrounds, being in one house and having to learn to live together. Well, that has the same thing to do with managing our assets and managing the concept of bringing everybody to the table so that as Hugh says, we have a structural strategic concept of where we're going, that we're not just looking at it from a one technical issue that has to be dealt with the points of pain and the like, but instead looking at it globally, taking a big picture look, see at who's not at the table, what hasn't been addressed, why are we doing it the way we always do it, who in the organization has some insights for us that may not be leadership, but could bubble up a key innovation for us. So making sure everyone is at the table. And I'll leave it at that and come back later. Very good. Um, if you don't mind, Mr. Daniel Ortiz Plata. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Uh, well, um, I'm engineer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Not a <laughs> 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 well, um, my experience has been in uh, industry, uh, oil and gas. Uh, I was working uh, in a refinery. And uh, since uh, 10 years ago, uh, I'm uh, independent. I'm uh, a consultant um, in uh, maintenance, uh, asset management, and in yeah, inventory, spare parts inventory, and other things like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, I, I, I'm here because uh, I'm, uh, I'm part of uh, ALN. Um, and uh, I, um, I, I want to talk, I, I'm not if, uh, just right now or later, but I want to talk about um, the, the um, let me see, um, the sustainable development goals from United Nations. And uh, I, I don't know if, uh, if you want to uh, present it right now or later, um, um, because I, I think that uh, this, um, uh, these sustainable development goals um, are um, key are key for uh, measure uh, um, the the to reduce the inequality or if we are reducing the inequality and inequity. Very good, sir. So I'll, I'll tell you what. Let me let me have you introduce himself because I'm kind of interested in it, and then we can go to your presentation. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, my name is Hugh Sinclair. I'm with WSSC Water. Uh, we're the water utility, uh, top 10 water utility in the U.S. We serve uh, suburban Maryland, just outside D.C. Uh, actually serve NIH. So uh, we're in interesting times that it goes forward. And that's why the example that Mark brought up of uh, water and the inequity of water and uh, uh, the realization of the fact that we're being revealed as to structural inequities that exist in systems 
that are representative in water but expand outside of that uh, is one of the things that I'm passionate with. Uh, my role in the organization is that I actually uh, head up the asset management program for all of our vertical asset facilities. Uh, so I'm intimately involved with this. Uh, strategic management and uh, capital planning is, is something I've been intimately involved with for a while. And also being, being a minority engineer, coming from a technical background, but also representative of the experiences that are disparately uh, representative of, uh, you know, persons of my background, it was important for me to understand the nexus between how the structure works and the disparate outcomes that were there. And that's really brought uh, this interest and this conversation uh, to life for me inherently now, because I think for me, I, I'm looking beyond just that representation matters. I think change matters. And representative change is really brought through an understanding of the systems that perpetuate the inequities that we're trying to solve, but also an inherent knowledge of the actual structural steps that you need to take to actualize change coming out of that. I think what we saw with Flint was an example that really exemplifies the fact that advocacy is not enough. Uh, you know, the city, they did not want to do this. Uh, it was a breakdown in the strategic and the technical that abandoned the need for an equitable level of service delivery to all customers that really perpetuated that example. And I think in that, what, we, what we're really looking on now and is exemplified, and I think even more so what's brought up by Daniel is the fact that we really need to look on this as a risk mitigation measure, right? Because if you really look on it, Flint was a breakdown in proper risk management, right? What they thought was is the fact that by taking this example and by making this disproportionate decision that the risk would not be realized or if the risk is realized that the advocacy feedback loop was not enough to make that uh, impalatable solution. So I think in that it's all connected uh, because, you know, as I mentioned before, structural problems require a structural solution. And I think here we're really trying to move towards that part of the conversation. Thank you very much, Hugh. Very insightful. And I see you're passionate about that too. I really appreciate that. So Daniel, feel free to go ahead and do your presentation, sir. You're still on mute at the moment too, by the way. I'm trying to, to show my presentation, but uh, I have no, I couldn't share. Um, Nick, uh, could you help me? Hey, Daniel, um, I just gave you permissions, so you should have them now. Try to share screen again, and if that doesn't work, I'll, I'll be happy to do it for you. I, I don't know. It, okay. Uh, stop to. Okay. We see it. Oh, we see some beautiful mountains anyway. Okay, have you seen it? Okay, well, um, I, I think there's a, a lot to talk about this topic. Uh, we could talk um, maybe more than that the time we have today, but uh, to make good use of this uh, time, I want to make a brief presentation, a brief reference uh, to the relationship uh, between 
equality, equity, sustainable development, and how these are linked uh, to asset management. Uh, first, uh, let me remind you of the origin of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, uh, going back to the year uh, 2000. In one of the many UN meetings, uh, they unanimously uh, agreed to adopt the Millennium Development Goals, MDGs, to reduce extreme poverty. Um, after that, uh, uh, at the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in uh, 2012, uh, member states adopted the outcome document, The Future We Want, in which they decided to launch a process to develop a set of SDGs uh, to build up uh, the MDGs. Uh, the process uh, culminated in the subsequent adoption of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development with 17 SDGs. As you, you see in this picture, uh, uh, it's not so clear, but <laughs> later <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> the agenda begins uh, with this phrase. This agenda is a plan of action for people, planet, and prosperity. If you have prosperity, you reduce the inequity and the inequality. Then I, I think that uh, by working in 17 SDGs, we are working in achieving equality and equity. Uh, every SDG uh, has uh, specific targets defined, uh, which in total are up uh, to 169 targets. A lot of. <laughs> evaluated with 237 uh, indicators. For those of uh, you have the, um, <clears throat> you have the, not had the opportunity to see this information, you can find the um, description of the goals, uh, targets and indicators in these links. Uh, these, these links, uh, you can find this information. We can see here goals uh, regarding water, people, industry, energy, cities, climate, life on earth, and peace. All of these subjects are crucial in obtaining equality and equity from the perspective of asset management. As you can see, um, we have a lot of indicators uh, to measure if uh, we are achieving these goals. Um, some of you may be asking what relationship do these uh, 17 SDGs, equality, equity and equality, uh, have with asset management? Well, in 2018, uh, the TC251 uh, published the document Achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, <clears throat> promoted by Dobin Niggins, um, um, which says, uh, good asset management, especially good asset management, <laughs> not uh, some asset management, good asset management is a key enable uh, for organizations seeking uh, to contribute to the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable, <clears throat> sustainable Development Goals. Uh, it shows the interaction between asset management principles and seven of the SDGs. Uh, these seven SDGs uh, are uh, clean water and sanitation, uh, affordable and clean energy, uh, decent uh, work and economic growth, uh, industry innovation and infrastructure, 
sustainable cities and communities, uh, responsible consumption and production, and climate action. Mm. <clears throat> okay, uh, the document mentions globally and not in depth the relationship between asset management, asset management and the SDGs. Recently, um, we needed uh, to go deeper to find specific details, uh, and we found some interesting things in terms of, of the targets indicators. We noticed uh, that we have a few indicators that could or sh should be applied to measure um, the company's achievement related to sustainability. Uh, in this uh, slide uh, and in the next one, uh, we show some indicators that uh, allow, intensive, uh, allow asset intensive uh, companies such as utilities, water, water, wastewater companies and public transportation to determine if um, they are um, achieving uh, their sustainable development goals. For example, uh, you can see the, the, the in the 611 proportion of population using safely managed drinking water services. And the other proportion of wastewater safely treated or proportion of population with access to electricity. Uh, in the next one, uh, we have uh, passenger and freight volumes by mode of transport, proportion of urban solid waste regularly collected and with adequate final discharge out of total urban solid waste generated by city, and number of companies publishing sustainability reports. That's a, a good, uh, <laughs> that's a good uh, uh, indicator. Well, uh, for us, uh, this really uh, contributed to, to measuring the sustainability and, in turn, the equity. Uh, however, checking other goals uh, and their indicators, I found that um, goals number two, uh, zero hunger, number three, goal, good health and well-being, number 15, life and on land and number uh, 16, peace, justice, and a strong structure institution uh, could be benefited from the asset management too. Uh, we have, for example, uh, coverage of essential health services or proportion uh, of the population satisfied with their last experience of public services. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, um, finally, I, I would like to, to end with uh, uh, by saying this. Uh, I'm sure that the asset management is a great contributor for equity and equality, or for in, uh, reduce the inequity and inequality by adding and achieving sustainable development goals. And uh, we can measure its contribution by using this information about targets and indicators included, included in the SDGs. We have many indicators, uh, as you um, see, um, more than two, 200 uh, indicators, and I think that could be more, but these are a good guide, uh, guide uh, to identify indicators for our company or for the companies and how we can contribute um, for reduce the inequity and inequality. Okay, that's, uh, that was uh, I want to share with, with you in, in, 
in this with this presentation. Then, uh, go ahead. Before you put away your presentation, can you put back the slide that had the um, all of the seventeen SDGs that you won? Yes, yes. I, I appreciate you bringing the global perspective to this question because this really is not just an American issue. It is a global issue of, of inequity and inequality that happens because of the failure to look beyond the loud voices, the squeaky wheel, or the people that are in the high places who have the ability to have advocates. So when you're looking at this, um, and you've got the highlighting of- uh, sorry, sorry, Cecilia, uh, uh, are you looking my picture, my- See. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so when we're looking at Daniel's picture here that has the affordable and clean energy is number seven, eight, decent work and economic growth, nine, industry innovation and infrastructure, um, sustainable cities and communities, climate action, all of those are big buckets that are categories, but then the individuals and where the inequities happen are in the other ones, the no poverty, number one, two, um, zero hunger, three, good health and well-being. Boy, do we need that right now in COVID where, where the disparities become very clear. Quality education, number four, five, gender, um, gender equality. Um, then life below water, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions and partnerships for the goals. When you look at all of those, there is an aspect of where Hugh talks about the issue of needing to have it be structural, where if we ask that question of who's not at the table, who is this being done for at the beginning of anything that we're doing to manage the assets, um, one of the things that ISO 55001 does is help you think about the fact that, or 55,000 defines asset as something of value to the organization, um, either prospective or current value. We, the people, are of value to the world. And so the thought comes to me that one of the things we need to do is not reinvent wheels, but use a merry the systems that are out there. So I appreciate you sharing the SDGs because that's something that's out there that's been done. And it's something that we here in America could take and use and marry with the whole issue of dealing with racial inequities and other poverty inequities, um, gender inequalities and the like, and layer these kind of concepts together to make sure we're asking and being mindful the first issue I think is starting with being mindful of the issues and who will be affected and what are we doing? Because you can have, like, I love how you said, Hugh, that you can have affordable water, but do you have the quality water? Do you have the level of quality? And so that customer bill of rights or the human bill of rights um, concept of, which humans are we going to be impacting? Instead of being bipartisan, we should be humanitarian, humanitarian and look at those issues. So thank you for raising that. So the 
great stuff, Daniel. I think this is a good global frame to really look at this thing at. Um, I think one thing that we would want to highlight, and I think it goes back to the example that Mark was uh, bringing up with the executive he was speaking to about why make an investment in customer service. I think we also need to look on the same frame for this. Uh, equity in service delivery, delivery, equity in infrastructure investment is a wise investment because it actually costs more to inefficiently fix the results of the inequitable outcome, right? Uh, it costs more money to retroactively go and solve the Flint issue versus making the wiser, more equitable investment up front. And I think that's the, if we take it outside of the, just the social frame, from an economic frame, it makes the most sense, right? Uh, not only are you able to have a more robust, reliable system, right? You're able then to spur the economic growth that then allows for reinvestment so that cost recovery and, you know, profitability, if that's the outcome, can then be the realized goal. So I think, you know, establishing the real understanding that we're not necessarily talking about here what is completely a social problem to solve. What we're really talking about here is a socioeconomic nexus that really gives us what is a sustainable, reliable solution going forward. And I think that's where, Daniel, your presentation really pulls it out to a larger frame to understand that on a global scale, this is something that is, why it may be micro in many of our communities, it is really macro on a global scale. And the results are pretty similar in its outcome. Uh, and the fact is, it is inefficient. So finding a better way to do it structurally, I think is the best outcome from anything. So, you know, equality always works to the best advantage of any system. Because in that sense, what you have is a system that not only can propel growth, but can extract value from as many input points as possible. Absolutely. It's interesting because when you look at the whole factor of where do you start, and, and Mark talked about starting in small groups to make sure that you start having these conversations. You have to bring something to the table for the people that are involved. And when you say, Hugh, it's not just the social, everybody who talks about diversity and inclusion always points to the fact that when you have diverse teams, when you have diverse perspectives, solutions are always better, more innovative, more profitable. Companies with divorce boards all are doing much better than those that don't have diverse boards. So you have to align the rationale of why we're doing this asset management and having this kind of a perspective of bringing inequity in or looking for equitable solutions you have to marry it with something that is tangible for the people that are coming to the table, that there will be profit there, that there will be something positive, an end result that will be more than a feel good. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, and really, to be honest, I think, uh, the, I'm sorry, Eric, that oh, no, I no, think you're every one of us, I think, has the baseline to make this work. Uh, in essence, we all have the basic qualifications no matter what our background is, because we're all customers, right? So I think in that sense, 
enabling us to not leave that you know relevant portion of our experience when we enter into the process i think really you know uh, compounds it because really what we're looking on here is a is a structuring of the golden rule to be for example is that you know would you want this outcome for yourself right and unfortunately the societal forces require representation to do that but i think on the other end of it if you don't have that contextual experience you can approach it from that standpoint to say okay i may not understand uh fully the results of inequity however i can uh contextualize my understanding as to how i would make decisions is that would i require the same if i were in that position right? and i think we have to bridge the gap between those who have that contextual experience and those who don't because that's really the only way that we're going to merge into finding a holistic solution uh because it comes back to it you know equity really the, this is the rising tide that lifts all boats really to be honest right uh and this in a sense really is a fact of retaining and, and and sustainability is the goal and i think you know the the fact about it is that in order to move from the boom and bust we really have to then really look on how do we create a broad coalition of equitable results so that we're sustainable over these things because i think even more of an example is that as climate change and other you know external factors come in that cause more than regular system stress we need to have a more robust system because cost recovery and resilience becomes more important you cannot necessarily have a resiliency of a infrastructure network that's only resilient for a certain part of your neighborhood because unfortunately you know whether the bus the transit or whatever else it has to pass through the disenfranchised areas to get to the other areas as well so it only makes sense that what we try to do is to create what is a sustainable model well and you raised the point just then hugh with the factor that i always tell my economic development folks if you're ignoring the houses with broken windows and you think that the new shiny cup object of your downtown is going to be the thing that people are going to see and remember you forget that they have to drive and they come and drive your communities and if you haven't found a solution and don't have a story to tell about what you're going to do for the least of these then you you may not get somebody who thinks that you're really the place that they need to be so you're absolutely right you have got to know to look at the broken windows and say, we have a plan to fix this broken window. And the thing that I find interesting is how do we get people to stop and be mindful? I think we're in a time period right now where the world has given us a reason to do that. Um, the first with the pandemic with coronavirus, and then now with the George Floyd and the realization of all of the inequities that are have always been there it's giving us all a chance to be more mindful and to ask the question as mark said what can i do to make things better in my own little circle and and fear sphere of influence in my areas of concern and circle of influence what can i do to make a difference yeah, I think that's crucially important. And uh, I think the main part of engaging in that conversation first, however, is is the fact of 
I think we have to accept that the systems are built to, if they're producing what they were built to do. I think that's the first part of the acceptance. I think inherently this starts to break down when we start to try to separate the results from the actual mechanism that created that result. I think if we accept that there's a disproportionate, dis, there's a disparity in the results of a system, that in itself brings us back to an objective conversation as to let's really talk about the fact of it is not, we're not cherry picking examples here. It is designed for what it's doing. So let's really talk about how do we move it to have a better result. And then also that helps us to uh, really measure success. Because I think, unfortunately, uh, when we probably take a slice, a slice is a beginning. What we don't want is that slice to be celebrated as the end. And I think that really is where we really need to ensure that you know this moves forward. It is humankind's challenge, and I think we all need to uh, pull together in that to make it work. But thank you all. Uh, I, I'm going to have to jump off, but this was a very enriching conversation. Eric, yeah. appreciate your, uh, your you know, taking the time to really navigate this conversation with all of us. Daniel, uh, Cecilia, thank you for meeting all of you. Well, hey, folks, uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for your passion. Again, you, you brought a lot to my, to my mind. I've learned a lot from all of you guys today. I actually have to drop off as well because I have a, a prior commitment. So the meeting will continue without me if you guys stay on. But at any rate, hey, I really appreciate the time. Uh, definitely uh, uh, honor the uh, ability to introduce Mr. Mark Mariel. I think that was a pleasure for me. So at any rate, folks, you take care, and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, Eric. Bye. I just wanted to break in real quick and uh, thank our organizational members, uh, because without them, none of this would be possible. And, uh, and yeah, as you guys saw, it is kind of the end of our allotted time. So if anyone needs to leave, feel free. Um, otherwise, uh, we'd love the discussion to continue. Thank you. So uh, this is Mike Bordenaro, Communications Director for the Asset Leadership Network. And wow, that exceeded uh, expectations. And I did not want to uh, let the momentum die. Uh, Marty Rowland was uh, instrumental in getting uh, Mark Morial to speak. So I wanted uh, Marty to uh, talk a little bit about how a standard that he's developing for municipalities addresses these complex and how it addresses um, inequity and inequality. Oh, thanks, uh, Mike. Uh, did you have the uh, slides there to, to open up? Oh, no, but if you could just talk about oh, it, that would okay. be Let me talk about it. Yeah, because I think it came up in, uh, in Mark's uh, talk about uh, forming the, the small groups and then adding on. And I think that was a good analogy to, uh, um, to bring up, to look forward to working with the National Urban League because uh, I think what uh, what we need are you know successes you know rather than you know the the big uh, bite of the the big apple maybe little baby steps and I think it's it's the idea of building on uh, successes uh, so uh, in the presentation I made uh, before uh, there's a standard that has various metrics for for what you want to accomplish and that's the kind of thing when you get a, a group together, uh, you know, a community, a neighborhood, 
saying, well, what do we want to achieve and how, how is it going to look? How are we going to measure it? How is it going to look? And you, you start there and you start saying, well, okay, we're, we're making some progress. So how do we add on to that? So all of a sudden you start measuring, let's say three types of infrastructure like education, water and healthcare. Then all of a sudden what you're measuring has a mo lot more impact because the, the total is uh, more than the sum of the parts. And I think that's where I think we need to head on this. And um, the way that- Marty, how many, how many different uh, asset categories does your standard address? Well, it's, it addresses 15 and it has the, the basic standard ones like water and sewage and education and, and recreation and, it does have one called nature, which is kind of interesting, but it's really a matter of respecting that which is, is out there. So, uh, so I see when cities and communities uh, adopt this standard, um, they would start with the ones that are most important and get them under their belt, so to speak, rather than taking all 15. And uh, I think one of the things to understand is that once the, the E3210 standard is, is adopted, it automatically creates asset, strategic asset management plans that can go into the ISO 55000. So that's, that's how it works together with uh, Asset Leadership Network and, and the, uh, the, the importance of the uh, ISO standard. Well, I thought it was uh, great that uh, Hugh had said that a structural problem requires a structural solution, and I and not just ISO fifty five thousand, but the idea of adhering to standards systems is that structural approach. So I wanted to ask Jim Dieter, the ALN CEO, to comment on what he has heard today and what this has to do, uh, how this could impact the asset leadership standard that he is uh, advocating and actually getting passed through ASTM. Jim, can you turn on your uh, microphone and your video? Perhaps not. I've been uh, sending him notifications, but I'm, he may be away. Oh, here he is. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Jim. I'm sorry, I just walked out of the room for a moment and I heard my name. So. Oh, of course, <laughs> that me. always works out that way. I was saying that um, you have uh, uh, initiated an asset leadership standard in ASTM and I wondered how that could help provide some structure for equity. Yeah, yeah. So, so good question. The uh, well, first, the leadership standard is basically just ISO fifty five thousand is about asset management, but it doesn't talk about who should be leading it, initiating it, planning it. Uh, it's very, uh, you know, it's a very tactical document, not a strategic document, really, not a strategic asset management plan. But that's a strategy to achieve the asset management objectives. The key is how do you tie the asset management objectives to the organizational objectives? 
What's the organization trying to do? And how do we use assets to do that? If you start from the assets perspective, it's like, what are we going to do with this train? You know, and that's not really what it's about. It's about, and it should be about, and there are some great Marx examples in there. I got to listen to that like five times. That was just, mm-hmm. I mean, all you guys are great, but yeah, Mark was just, uh, that was stunning. Uh, the, the idea is, what are we, you know, what are we trying to achieve? We got a city, we need, and this is where Marty's standard comes in beautifully. Here's the things we need to do in a city. He's laid it all out. We need to have education, we need to have recreation, we need to have water, we need to have transportation. So you think about transportation, we need to move people. You think about education, we need to educate people. And the assets, you know, so, and it's about the people, right? I don't, I don't, you know, maybe it sounds like a political statement now, but I think it's about the people, not about corporations, but that's just who I am. Uh, it's about the people. And uh, Marty's standard addresses, this is what you need in a city because of the people. It's not what do corporations need to sell to New York City. It's what do the people in New York City need and how can corporations and the government, and all those pieces work together to deliver it. So uh, the equity piece falls in because you can apply that basic ISO 55,000 concept of stakeholder involvement, which isn't exactly like most of 55,000. It's not rocket science. It's like, oh, we should get everybody involved that's impacted? <laughs> wow, what a concept. <laughs> Yeah, who would have thought of that? <laughs> but Jim, the whole problem with that is getting everybody involved, who everybody is defined as, is based on who's already at the table. And so, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. And that's yeah. one of the issues. And, and I, you know, I think it is about the people, whether you're talking about a corporation, whether you're talking about a not for profit, it's about the mission of the organization, whether it's a city the government, yeah, yeah, the company, it doesn't matter. What's the mission? And the mission always has to do with people at the end of the day. Selling something to somebody, educating somebody, bringing somebody on board, whatever it is, protecting somebody, it's about people at the end of the day. So at the beginning of the day, I think you have got to start with a discussion that says, ask the question differently. Who are the stakeholders that I might have forgotten? Who's not at the table? Yeah, yeah. Get to the point of who should be at the table and what has not been done for the people that are not at the table? Those that don't have the advocates that can come out and say, you should build in this area or we need development here. And so all of a sudden you're all, all of your development dollars are going in the one area and the area that really truly could benefit from it gets nothing. If people ask different questions and are more mindful about what they don't know. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to add something because I think when you start engaging people in a community, uh, you you take the people who are there and if the people who let's say are already at the table and uh, you know, so you, you might put on a chalkboard same old, same old, and ask somebody to define, what does that mean? <laughs> so then you start uh, you know, comparing what people are really there to solve. You know? 
Yeah, mm -hmm. I got a great example for that that I've used in other ways. And it's a, it's my Six Sigma example. And I got involved in Six Sigma programs, uh, you know, anyhow, along in my career, which can do some great things. But I also say, when people that think it's the answer to all things, I say, Six Sigma is the theory that if you put Pony Express drivers in a room, you'll invent Federal Express. You know, it's like, no, you need other people at the table. And the more people you have at the table, and again, another point Mark and others made brilliantly, it's like the more people you add at the table, the better the answer is. It's harder. It's always making a decision by yourself is always the easiest, right? It's always easy. So more people makes it harder. But uh, I want to thank Daniel. He has to go. Oh. Well, your presentation brought the global perspective and really drove home so much. Uh, very much appreciate your participation. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Pleasure for me. And I should say that uh, Danielle and Cecilia will be part of a panel on uh, Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, our first ALN Espanol event. So those of you who speak Spanish or know people who speak Spanish, you can share information on that. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, Daniel. Uh, so. Well, well, one of the things I wanted to, you know, really drive what Mark had said was it's, you know, about the mission. And ISO 55001 4.1 says all asset management plans shall um, reflect the organizational objectives. And what that does is say, maybe you need to rethink your organizational objectives. Mm -hmm. It's start, you know, once you get the stakeholders together, maybe you rewrite the mission statement. Right. And that could be a helpful uh, step in uh, establishing equity and equality. Jim, I'd like to ask Jim a question about the use of um, asset leadership network or the asset management system 55001 in conjunction with corporate social responsibility because that's the place where from a business perspective um, we've seen an evolution where companies are putting in a mindset in their companies of what they have to do from a corporate social responsibility standpoint. Yeah. And I'm sure that municipalities and cities are also doing charters of that nature as well. How would you see us aligning ISO 55001 to that general concept of corporate social responsibility, which is really critical for, to a company to understand its business objectives, its um, role in civil society and its responsibility for sustainability and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, like I said in my uh, talk last week, it's, uh, you know, my uh, one attribute I have is uh, I try to see things simply. And, uh, you know, the simple answer is, well, that's, you know, it's a key group of stakeholders to get involved is, you know, is the really simple answer, you know, how, you get people and their vested interest and their frame of reference uh, changed over time, kind of goes to Hugh's question. 
you know, how does, how does change happen? Uh, you know, it becomes a topic about that. But, uh, you know, based on, uh, you know, uh, Candy's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and clearly see now all the, a lot of these answers. It is a policy question. You, you change policy. You change policy. And, uh, and then uh, the change of people comes along. Right. But, but you change policy, and that gives us uh, a harder target, or uh, you know, a firmer yeah. is what I'm trying to say target than changing people's minds. What uh, one of the things that Hugh had said in a preliminary discussion that really uh, helped me understand the issue and how to address it was instead of asking how much does it cost and how much does it cost to maintain yeah. should be asking what is the level of service to the customer and if you ask that question then a lot of things get cleared up right away and mark was referring to that in different words mm -hmm. but hugh had it set up uh, said pretty uh, directly and clearly i thought yeah well you know, yeah. all the more relevant all all the time of course as you know, we can talk about manufacturing jobs and all that, and it's, you know, it makes a great campaign speech, but uh, it ain't about manufacturing, you know, it's about a service industry, live in a service industry, you know, service economy, and uh, it makes it easier for us if we try, as you're suggesting, to see the outcome of any organization as, uh, you know, as a service, that's service. You know, the metro is, you know, delivering transportation service, you know, as are the airlines and the airports and Ubers and, you know, and all of it. Uh, well, I think this sure. has uh, been a, a Question wonderful... I was going to ask, though, before you raise what Hugh had said, there's one thing about having a standard and having a policy, but... I mean, and I know that in 55,001, there is the need for measurement. I think that that is the critical thing that you put it in policy, but if you don't measure the policy on a basis that it goes down into the organization, it never gets done. It doesn't get, it doesn't change the organization. What Mark talked about was how he changed the organization by saying, we're not gonna do this anymore with this fiefdom and that fiefdom. We're gonna bring everybody together. We're gonna to have not just one project at a time. We're gonna do what's the overall vision for our community. Here are all the projects we've got. Let's integrate them. Some people will get more play at one point. Others will get other play, but everybody will understand what's at stake. Yeah. And everybody will also have an ability to measure and have an expectation set for what's going to happen. So I think it's really critical that measurement aspect of 55,001, um, which I can't remember, is that seven, section seven? But I can't remember. But at any rate, that, you know, you've got the planning piece of it in six, and then you really have got to make sure that you drive those objectives down to every individual in the organization's um, scoreboard. 
whatever their dashboard for the year, their performance evaluation. When we did at McDonald's diversity and inclusion, everybody had to have a diversity goal. So asset management can be the same and equity in asset management can be the same if you drive it down. So I would recommend making sure we put something in that says that as well. Drive it down to the lowest, even though you have the highest um, level of championship from a CEO, from a executive director, whosoever, whatsoever. Everybody has to know their role and what the mission is and why what they control in their sphere fits into being an important asset of value to the company. They have to feel that they're important. I can uh, quote one of our ALN senior fellows, Art Kurland, who implemented the ISO 55001 certification at the university health system. And he said, because they are a healthcare organization, they all understand the value of certification they all are being certified in their medical professions. And so when he came to them all, all 300 departments and said, we're getting the ISO 55001 certification, they understood that value and didn't want to be the department that messed things up. <laughs> they participated. And one of the things that I want to quote from Art is he said, adopting ISO 55000 addresses inequity because you have to include all relevant stakeholders. And in order to be certified, you've got to show that you've done that. You've identified the stakeholders. He identified 300 departments, so they, they all had to show it. And then you get to choose your measurement. So as soon as you say you've got to use ISO 55,000, and I looked it up real quick, uh, Cecilia, it's 55,001 uh, section nine, that is uh, measurement. And, and you set up how you're going to be doing the measurement. So what you were asking for would be part of your plan. Right. Okay, you. I got three things, quick. And then we can go. I got them stacked up. I can only remember three things at a time. So I'm <laughs> impressed to do that, but just quickly. One is the issue of value to organizations and stakeholders. There's a hugely important concept of externalized costs. When I pollute, what's the cost of that and who's paying that cost? Huge, huge issue that's an equity issue, largely. Second is, every year at our event, we have some amazing new person that comes on the scene and we go, wow. Our first one, it, year it was Mike. And Cecilia, obviously, this year, it's you. <laughs> oh, that is so sweet. Jim, thank you. That's amazing. Not that there's not others, but I mean. Oh, I, well, we had a bunch of them today. All of us. That could have been a three-hour program um, yeah. but because we could have gotten into many more things and drilled down on the whole issue. Of how We're going to. Don't yeah. worry. So, we will. Speaking of which, <laughs> this isn't a one-day thing. Right. Okay, uh, I see my vision and I want to get it endorsed by our executive board. Uh, but, you know, this discussion and developing a position paper about it 
uh, and continuing to work on it, I see as being a key role for the Asset Leadership Network in the coming year and beyond. So uh, I hope I will hope to involve all of you in that effort. Uh, one thing I'd like to do, you know, was we have we need to get ourselves organized you know, here quickly. But uh, uh, Candy, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, has started a, uh, a center at American University here on anti-racism and policy. And I think we would be a great partner for them. And they're looking for partners. So I think that would be an awesome partnership to partner with a local university here in Washington. I mean, it could be anywhere, but you know, it's good here in Washington, and uh, you know, look for those intersections. Uh, and I think this this is one, and is a huge way that uh, you know inequity and hopefully equity can play out uh, in our country and in the larger world, as Daniel pointed out. I love that, and, and I will share another one. The Kellogg Foundation has a program called Racial Healing, um, Truth, T-R-H-T, Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. That is something that has been out there for, I guess it's almost 10 years that they've been working on this concept. And when Mark Morial talks about starting with smaller groups, there are healing circles, there are different groups where you tell your stories. Um, and that's another possible group that we could become a resource. They've got a whole thing of resources that we can look into possibly aligning both with the one you just mentioned and others and, and seeing how we can bring a standard that is simplistic, but complete and holistic. In, as a tool for others to use and get that um, common language that you talked about. There's, there aren't, amazingly, it's an ALN thing in general, there aren't other people doing what we're doing. They're just, they're just not. Well, it's so like it's up to hidden us. assets. Hidden assets. I used to, when I was at McDonald's, you know, and I was, no, that was actually when I was at Ameritech and in charge of leasing there and ask, um, the real estate portfolio there. And at, at Illinois Bell, we looked at the fact that asset management was something that was a black hole. Um, it just got done. And it wasn't until there was a problem or an issue that people stopped and realized, uh-oh, we got to deal with this now. And it wasn't as systemic or systematic and structural as um, was, was necessary to get the best outcome and to optimize the value for the organization. So when you start putting systems in place, you always end up with a better outcome. And when you have diverse people involved in putting those systems in place, you get a innovative and fabulous, even better outcome. It's been scientifically proved. Yeah. I mean, and that's totally the story. That's another story of the ALN is from the, this ALN sprang from the U.S. tag price of 55000 uh, And we found there that we had a very diverse group in terms of various interests 
you know, in the United States. A lot of the other countries around the world were, you know, all mining people are all energy people are all rail people are all engineers. And we had a very diverse group. I mean, the first times we got together, uh, it was, no, I do asset management. No, I do asset management. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Those aren't asset. Oh, well, actually, I guess maybe they are. Yes. <laughs> and what you do is, and the maintenance people could never understand that I could be an asset manager and not know squat about maintenance. I said, you guys are awesome. I don't know nothing about it. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. But Except for you like it when it's maintained. <laughs> but the energy that, you know, culminated, that ensues, that continue to ensues from that, ensued from that is uh, remarkable. So there's you know, divergent voices, uh, you know, it's, you know, totally there. Well, we have to uh, thank Marty Rowland once again. I think that's a good way to uh, end this up. Marty, thank you for the connection to Mark Morial. And Marty and I have been chatting uh, back and forth, and we are not going to let it stop here. We're going to bring some standards thinking and systems thinking to the National Urban League. Yeah, I think it's great. And I really appreciated Mark's uh, uh, letter to the uh, to the ASTM people to show the the, the support behind the E thirty two ten standard. That was great that he did that. So I'm looking uh, forward to working together. Uh, people might not realize it, but Mark, uh, in order to help uh, Marty get his standard passed, Mark uh, wrote a glowing letter of recommendation for the standard. Yeah. And I would say uh, Mark's that Mark's talk and you know staying on to answer question was the longest ten minutes I've ever been involved. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't let him go, did we? And no. We didn't want to either, but then somebody else was calling him that he had to. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, thank you all. It's an honor. And to thank be you, involved. Nick. Um, doing a great job really pulled this one together. People don't know what happened behind the scenes, but uh, Nick did some magic today. And, and thanks to all the uh, other attendees who stuck around. Uh, you know, maybe we'll get smarter on this and be able to promote more people to the afterwards discussions going forward. John Shellness has refused frequently and James uh, Kroll, thank you, and Tyron Dakar. Uh, please email us uh, with any questions or comments or anything you want to know further. We appreciate and hopefully, you. And hopefully you'll want to get involved in our initiative going forward around this. Okay. I think I think I see an additional senior fellow on my screen right now. Who could it be? <laughs> <laughs> Marty's already a senior fellow. Marty's already a senior fellow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk offline about that. No pressure. <laughs> okay. Jim is great at getting people to volunteer. So look out, Cecilia. Okay. Oh, is that what he was saying? I'm clueless. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the arrow. I'm looking at the chat. I'm like, who's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, Marty, I'm going to get the 3210 standard. I want to see the E3210 standard. Oh, yeah, it's really good. That would be helpful with the economic development organizations I work with. Um, yeah, looking that. forward to working with you. Yeah, it'd be great. Absolutely. You know, what I what I thought when I saw that, and the reason I you know was uh, I think was an early supporter and helped 
<laughs> Marty worked the labyrinth of it that is ASTM. Uh, but, uh, you know, the uh, ASCE infrastructure ratings, which people are familiar with, you know, are very valuable, but they're very negative, you know, uh, is the bottom line. And there's some, there's some positive stuff about it, but it always comes about being about how bad we are. Uh, and Marty's is what's possible. It's mm. about what's possible and what could and should be done. Uh, so I think it's, you know, a good companion to that, to understand, you know, take a broader view of infrastructure, which really includes everything. Not just because it's all in a building, Mike, but... <laughs> Around a building, too. Trees grow next. all about the building. It's all about the building. Everybody <laughs> understands how... It's all about how... the people. It's all about the people. It's all about the people. Without the people, the buildings stand vacant. Take a look downtown in any downtown right now. I mean, you need the people. What a great parting thought from Cecilia. It's all about the people. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Kanoki, and this was Advancing Equity with Asset Leadership. For more podcasts, videos, and other content, visit assetleadership.net. And if you'd like to be involved in advancing equity or other initiatives, we would love to hear from you.